It's Friday, March 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After a lot of hype, and with the backdrop of the public testimony from Michael Cohen, we found out that the second summit with Trump and Kim Jong-un had collapsed. No deal was made, and the summit was even cut short. The main issue that could not be agreed upon were the lifting of sanctions on North Korea. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, joins us for a breakdown of the Hanoi Summit. Next, YouTube has been having a lot of problems related to its services and children. First, they disabled comments on millions of videos where users were commenting with timestamps on videos that showed minors in suggestive positions or situations. Second, reports said that their YouTube Kids platform was showing children videos with disturbing images on them. Luis Matsakis, security writer at Wired, joins us for how to help protect your kids. Finally, millennials are experiencing buyer's remorse after purchasing a house. The top reason why? They didn't realize how much it costs for maintenance. Others are using social media to find a house and aren't even visiting the neighborhoods they might be living in. Diana Olick, real estate correspondent at CNBC, joins us for how to avoid buyer's remorse. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This wasn't a walk away like you get up and walk out. No, this was very friendly. Uh, We shook hands. We, uh, you know, there's a a warmth that we have. Now, I hope that stays. I think it will. I could have signed an agreement today, and then you people would have said, oh, what a terrible deal, what a terrible thing he did. No, you'll have to be prepared to walk. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. So after the much-hyped second summit with North Korea and Kim Jong-un, The president called the summit short. They cut it short. They did not agree on anything. And the president walked away. He said, "Uh, sometimes you have to walk away from a deal. And that's exactly what he did. There was nothing substantive that came out of it. The president was receiving some praise for actually leaving. There was a worry that he might give too many concessions or something like that. But he left and it started in the middle of the day where people, a lot of people were reporting that you could see that this was not going the way that the president wanted it to go. What do we know about the second summit with North Korea, Dave? Going into the summit, just about everybody that I spoke to was expressing concern that Trump was too eager for a deal, that he would take basically whatever the North Koreans could offer, declare victory, and head back to Washington. That's the exact opposite of what happened. As it turns out, Trump said the North Koreans were asking for far too much in terms of sanctions relief. He said the process is going to continue to move forward. He's still optimistic, but that they couldn't agree to anything this week. So it was a pretty dramatic and really a surprising outcome to this summit that many of us felt Trump was hoping would be a showcase of his deal-making skills and a distraction from all the issues back in Washington. The president has this kind of personalized diplomacy. You know, he wants to get in there and mix it up with the world leader himself so that they can hash out a deal much like he would in the business world. Do you think it might have been a better course of action if Mike Pompeo and his team were to hash out a very specific deal and only then get the two leaders together just so they can do the pomp and circumstance. They can do a signing, whatever declaration, whatever deal they actually reached instead of Trump maybe trying to finagle a deal himself. Right. So that's how every other president would do it, right? I mean, they would say, here are my general terms. You do the negotiations first. 
And once you get close, I'll weigh in and then we can have the summit, right? That's usually how these things work. In this case, Trump, he basically says he likes to get in the room and feel the other guy out and see where there's an opportunity for a deal. That's really hard to do when you're talking about technical stuff like sanctions and like nuclear weapons. And so, you know, I I think what happened here is that the negotiators ahead of time didn't have much time and didn't have a ton of authority because they don't necessarily know what President Trump is going to agree to in the end. And so they didn't get that far heading into Hanoi. A lot of us were actually surprised at how little was agreed on going into the summit. And I think that showed itself. So really, the only surprise was that rather than going for some limited deal that really wasn't getting at denuclearization, but that both sides could walk away happy from, that President Trump just said, nope, we're not getting anywhere and we're going to walk away. Let's talk about sanctions because there's some conflicting reports on how much of a sticking point that was. And both sides say that it was all about the sanctions. The president said that North Korea wanted relief of all sanctions. And North Korea, for their part, said that, well, we only wanted partial sanctions lifted and that the U.S. did not want to make any concessions. Uh, So much so that even the North Korean foreign minister said that she's not sure if Kim Jong-un even has the will to keep negotiating on this thing. There's a couple problems with the North Korean position, and there is a real discrepancy here because uh, Trump said all sanctions. They wanted all sanctions gone. The North Koreans say they want five sets of sanctions, neither the more recent sanctions on North Korea. But still, that's a big ask in terms of something that you're offering in exchange for a step toward denuclearization, right? You're saying you get rid of these sanctions that are going to be really hard to put back on, first of all, and that second of all, Trump doesn't have the authority to unilaterally get rid of because these are, you know, there's legislation backing these sanctions. So it was always going to be really hard for Trump to say, okay, we'll wipe those away and you destroy one nuclear facility. That was a deal that was going to be really hard for him to make. From Kim's perspective, these sanctions are really hurting his ability to do what he says is his stated goal now, which is to develop his country economically. And so that's really why people think there is still space for a deal, because at some point, If he wants to have an economy that's not stuck in the bottom ranks of the third world, he's going to need to get some relief from these sanctions. And so maybe they'll be back at the table with more realistic plans at some point in the future. As I said at the beginning, the president did get a lot of praise for walking away from a deal. You know, he's not going to just cave into anything. And rightly so. That's that's good that we didn't give any big concessions away. Where he did receive a little bit of flack was in the case of Otto Wambier. There was a reporter that asked, you know, what do you think about uh, North Korea and their human rights violations and Otto Wambier? And the president kind of stuck up for him, said that Kim says he didn't have a role in it. He didn't know anything about it. And I know there were some even Republican lawmakers that were hitting on him for that one. Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador, is one of those who who put out a tweet that seemed to be criticizing Trump over this. And and Trump, there's a pattern here where he has said, you know, you think of Vladimir Putin, he says that I believe them when they tell me X, I believe it. In the case of Otto Warmbier, what Trump said was Kim had no incentive for Otto Warmbier to die in North Korean custody. And so he wouldn't have known that this kind of treatment was going on. The reason that's hard to believe is that North Korea is a very centralized system. There's not a ton that goes on sort of outside of the remit of Kim and and his regime. And so even beyond that point, it leaves kind of a bad taste in your mouth that you have a young American dead and 
and you have the U.S. president on the world stage basically standing up for the, the dictator that's responsible for his death. And in the meantime, it's back to the drawing board on denuclearizing that Korean peninsula. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. When YouTube Kids was first released in 2015, within a couple months, child advocacy groups were complaining that there was disturbing content on the platform. Joining us now is Louise Metsakis, security writer at Wired. We're going to be talking about YouTube. There's been a lot of news surrounding them lately uh, with uh, YouTube, the service, and kids in general. We're going to talk about two distinct things. One, about YouTube disabling comments on videos featuring minors. And then another one about YouTube Kids, which is their offshoot app that caters to videos specifically to young children. And there's been a, a lot of reports about disturbing videos showing up on that platform. Let's start off with YouTube disabling comments on videos featuring minors. It, it, there was reports that people were going on videos and then commenting on certain videos and showing timestamps within the video that showed minors in suggestive positions. People were saying it was some type of softcore pedophilia ring. So YouTube said they're going to disable comments on like millions of videos. That's exactly what happened. And I think what's really interesting about this story is that it actually came from YouTube itself, right? It was a YouTuber who kind of brought this to the attention of the greater world. It's a pretty intense step that they're taking here to just disable the comment section, right? Which is a very prominent part of YouTube's platform. But I think that they're really moving quickly and swiftly here and making a really big change because this is so serious and it is pedophilia and it's children. And what a lot of these videos seem to be were like gymnastics videos or videos involving young children. And many of the videos were actually innocuous, right? But the comments were where this issue was happening, which is kind of a unique problem here. It's not the content of the video itself. It's the greater commentary and social media aspect of the platform. And it wasn't the people uploading the videos themselves either. These were just creepy people that came across the video and commented on it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that this is causing a lot of upset in the creator community because it's not really their fault, right? It's not the creators who uploaded these videos that are kind of at fault here. It's the commenters. And a lot of creators are saying, well, it's not really my problem to moderate the comments. And YouTube is saying, you know, actually, if you are uploading these videos of minors and we're going to let you keep the comment section, you need to be actively moderating it. So it's kind of another added burden here for creators. I think YouTube's definitely making the right choice because this is such a serious issue. And there's also a money aspect here, right? A bunch right. of advertisers pulled out because of this. Let's talk about YouTube kids because that's another disturbing trend where, you know, a lot of times parents will set up their kid with an iPad or something and say, hey, look at YouTube kids. The implication, the thought is that there's going to be a, a lot of nice videos, you know, Sesame Street type things, educational cartoon things. But we're getting reports that certain things like a, a kid can be watching Peppa the Pig and then uh, she drinks bleach or she gets stabbed or something like that. There's all sorts of different videos uh, that are coming up and kids are just kind of observing them. They're not they don't necessarily know what to do and they're not doing anything specifically either to search those out. I think what's important for parents to know here is that this has been an issue from the start. When YouTube Kids was first released in 2015, within a couple months, child advocates groups were complaining that there was disturbing content on the platform. So it's definitely an issue. And the reason that this app exists is that in the United States, we have a law that you're not allowed to collect information on users under 13. So that's why it's a different app and it's a different experience. And it's supposed to be safer, right? It's supposed to be the safer environment. But it's really not. And YouTube now straight up says we cannot manually moderate every video. Inappropriate videos might slip through. So they're pretty forthcoming about that in a way that they weren't necessarily in the past. 
What I recommend parents do is that YouTube has new features where you can only limit the content your child views to videos you actually handpick yourself. And you can handpick groups of channels that are curated by UNICEF or by PBS. So if you just want to set this up really quickly and not worry about it, you can pick those channels, but then you're not letting your kids search the greater landscape of YouTube kids, which is really where these kind of creepy type of the pig kind of things come up. And that's an important distinction to this being able to limit it to just these curated videos, because from my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it uses a lot of keywords. So if somebody uploads a video that says Peppa the Pig and, you know, in the middle of the video, it has some of the disturbing images, YouTube kids and YouTube at large is just kind of organizing things based off of those keywords. So if the video ends and it says next recommended video is this Peppa the Pig video. That's how things pop up. That's how it, it shows up onto these apps for, for the kids. It's the recommendation algorithm. It's the up next video that plays automatically after the official type of a pig video, right? Like that's, it's not that any parent is choosing these like knockoff creepy videos. It's that they come up via the recommendation algorithm and the creators, if you can call them that, you know, the people that make these videos are piggybacking on already popular trends. It's not that that's why those things come up because they piggyback on the real Peppa the Pig or the real Mickey Mouse or whatever it is. Exactly. So if you turn off that feature where you're not letting those recommended algorithmically chosen videos into your kid's iPad or whatever, then you're stopping kind of that from happening. But a lot of parents don't know about that. And, you know, especially if you're just trying to set this up really quickly, it's not always easy to, to know where all those parental controls are. Or if you're not even using the YouTube Kids app, if you're just using the normal YouTube app. That's a whole other set of issues, right? The other problem is that kids are really smart and they figure out a way around these settings very quickly and very easily. A lot of times, you know, the clicking around, they figure out, oh, you know, this opens me to a whole new world of videos here. I'm going to do it right away. So that's the other thing that parents need to be concerned about. Yeah. Kids are really smart. They don't even need to be able to read to get around this stuff. Like you can search via YouTube kids with your voice. So definitely keep that in mind that even if you think you've done everything, you probably haven't. And they can just close YouTube kids and go in the browser or something like that, right? Yeah. Definitely. These are not a foolproof solution, but especially if you have really young kids, definitely turn these things on. Yeah. And if you need, really need a lockdown on it, set a timer so that the app stops when uh, the time you set runs out and that way they can't see anymore. Louise Matsakis, security writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They didn't seem to like the neighborhoods that they were in. And you think to yourself, well, if you're making a huge purchase. <laughs> yeah, that's just your fault, right? Right. There. Joining us now is Diana Olick, real estate correspondent for CNBC. We're going to be talking about home ownership. There's a new survey out that says most millennial homeowners have buyer's remorse after they get their house. I mean, I don't know. It's a sign of maybe they're doing it wrong. But 63% of them say they had regrets about buying the house that they did. What do we know about that? It was a survey that was done by Bankrate.com, which does a lot of education and help for people looking to get a mortgage learning how to buy a home. So they certainly had the, the right segment of people to ask about this. And, and the biggest issue was that millennials didn't seem to understand that in addition to the regular cost of buying a home, which are the down payment, the mortgage, the interest rate, the taxes, the insurance, you also got to pay when something breaks. And so it was the maintenance of the house. Oh, so man. many millennials who are buying now are renting, right? So when something needs to be fixed, they just call the landlord and they don't have to deal with it. Well, that's not the way it works when you own a house. And some of those repairs and upgrades, et cetera, can cost you thousands of dollars. I guess that's kind of the narrow way of thinking. You know, it's such a huge purchase already. A lot of people are throwing 
all of the money that they have into it to buy a house anyways. Problems and maintenance are kind of the furthest thing in your head when you're thinking of making such a big purchase at the beginning. Especially for millennials, because they're so on the edge of homeownership. They've got really high levels of student loan debt. They've been renting, perhaps, at really high rents. They're looking at one of the priciest housing markets in history. So they're stretching in the first place. And so they look at all the figures that they think are most important, and they say, well, if something breaks, you know, I'll either deal with it or I'll fix it later or something. But you can't do that when there's water flooding out all over your kitchen. How about some other big regrets that millennials have? They didn't seem to like the neighborhoods that they were in. And you think to yourself, well, if you're making a huge purchase. <laughs> yeah, that's just your fault, right? Right. <laughs> well, but it's interesting the reason why. And they said it had a lot to do with social media. They found that so many millennials use social media that they don't really walk around the neighborhood physically. So while they'll walk around the house and they'll check out what they like about the house, they don't take that stroll around the neighborhood or the drive around the neighborhood. I always say to people, if you're thinking about a certain neighborhood, have dinner there, have lunch there, have breakfast there, go over to whatever the regular things in the neighborhood are and really get a feel for where you're going to live because you can buy a beautiful house anywhere and be miserable somewhere because of where you are. That's why they say real estate's location, location, location. They're not lying about that. So that was one of the reasons which was really interesting. It's like as people were surfing the web or they were talking to friends on social media and they were going, oh, it's a great place to live. And then they were getting there and saying, I hate it. When you're looking for a house, the staging, you know, the house looks so perfect and cool, but I'd really rather see the house with nothing in it just to know where a lot of the problem points are. No, that's a huge business. I mean, you ask real estate agents, if you walk into an empty house, you don't get nearly as much interest as if you stage the house. There's a whole psychology behind staging of making it almost look like a hotel room, but a swanky hotel room so that you feel like you're almost on vacation. Right. And then you say, oh, I can picture myself here. I can enjoy this. Decorated so nicely. This is how it's going to look when I move in. And what you don't realize is the minute you buy it, all that stuff that they use to stage it disappears (laughs) because it's rented. And there you are with a clean slate. And if you're not such a great decorator, you're not living in that house. Exactly. It makes me want to say, hey, can you you leave the furniture, please? Well, sometimes you can buy furnished homes, but that's going to cost (laughs) you too. And overall, though, owning a home still is very much a part of the American dream. Uh, Everybody wants to have that one thing of their own. I'm not so sure about that because I talk to a lot of millennials. Now, granted, millennials have been later to come to the normal stages in life. That is getting married, having kids, moving into that parenthood where you're looking for the local schools and you're looking for that sense of stability of a neighborhood where your family can grow up. And they're doing that later in later years. But I really talk to a lot of folks who like the flexibility of renting. There's also a huge trend toward living in single family rental homes. Renting doesn't mean living in a tiny apartment with your whole family. You can rent a beautiful house and have the flexibility of, oh, if after this year I want to move somewhere else or I don't like this neighborhood or perhaps I want to put my kids in a different school district, you can do that. I see a lot more young people trending away from that American dream idea. You see a lot of these surveys by generally they're real estate companies that are finding that, oh, yes, the American dream is alive as well. You have to look very clearly at how they're asking the questions because some millennials don't actually think that home ownership is a really good investment over time, especially if home prices are as inflated as they are now. They're not going to go that much higher in the next five, 10 years. So is it that great an investment or is it a better investment for me to put my money in the markets and rent or for me to become a landlord maybe? And renting will help with that buyer's remorse. If you don't like it, you can move along. Diana Olick, real estate correspondent for CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.